Let me pray for our time in God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you inspired your servant Micah to write these words. We thank you for its effect throughout history. How we know even from other prophets how this text has even encouraged the nation of Israel and how it still encourages believers today. God, we know others have studied this passage time and time again, but we pray that as your people, as we study your word this morning, that you would renew our minds. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word clearly. And God, may we be changed and may we worship you in a new and better way from this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been getting into some legal shows or some law shows, and one of my favorite things to watch is how the prosecution and the defense structure their arguments. We all know the prosecution is the one bringing the case or they're making the case, and the defendant is usually trying to defend themselves of whatever the charges are. I was reading of some cases this weekend, and in 1978, there was a supervisor in San Francisco named Dan White. He assassinated um, a guy who is the mayor named George Moscone and a fellow supervisor named Harvey Milk. So as this case was going on, White, the defendant, had been known as a bit of a health buff. He was in very good shape. He kept in very good health. He was a fitness fanatic. But at his trial, the team showed that before the murder, his diet had changed. Instead of eating health food and drinking nutritious drinks and smoothies and things like that, he had started eating Twinkies and eating all sorts of junk food. And the defense was able to make their argument in such a way as to say that White was depressed and that that led to these murders. And they were able to get his sentence down from a murder charge to a voluntary manslaughter charge, which resulted in several years off of his life sentence. Now, the public was outraged when this happened, and the case was known as the Twinkie Defense case, that they made the defense based on the fact that he had started eating Twinkies. Now, whether or not you agree with that verdict or not, it's a little ridiculous for myself. In our text this morning, we see a trial that's taking place. Now, we can't really equate trials that happened back in Micah's day to the way that our court system works today. But we do see a trial, it's called trial language taking place with the plaintiff, the one bringing the argument being God, and the defendant being the nation of Israel. If you want to know what the charges are, you can go back and read chapters 1 through 3 of Micah, and it will point out the different sins, the different problems that the nation of Israel had within their leadership. We read about how they bribed different people how they were mistreating the poor, especially the widows and the orphans, how God said they hated justice, how they didn't know who God was. We saw at the end of chapter 5 last week how they started having idols and they were worshiping idols rather than worshiping God. And so chapter 6 starts this new message or this new oracle in the book of Micah. But when God gives them this condemnation to judgment at the end of chapter 6 it talks about the judgment that's going to come onto Israel his reasoning or his argument comes from verses 1 through 8 what was Israel's problem and as we'll see this morning Israel's issue was more than just their 
corruption. It was more than just bribing people. It was more than even just picking on widows and orphans and things like that. But Israel didn't know how to worship God properly. That's what we're going to see as we look at Micah chapter 6 this morning. That they had no idea how to worship God as he wanted to be worshipped. We see throughout scripture that God is a jealous God. He's the only person that you can talk about being jealous and that's a good thing. He is alone worthy of our worship. He is alone worthy of our praise. And what I want us to see in this text this morning is this. It's that God deserves our worship. When we look at the character and the goodness of God throughout creation, God's character, his goodness, his works, as we'll see, what I want us to see is that God deserves our worship. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've heard this word worship thrown around and you think it's just what we do when we're singing the different songs or maybe when we pray to start the service. Maybe it's even as the pastor is preaching the worship service in general. But what really is worship? Well, I got a definition from D.A. Carson. He's a famous Christian writer, and he says that worship is a response of all moral, sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy and delightfully so. Think about this with me. Worship is a response. When we sang songs this morning about God's holiness, his eternality, oh God, our help in ages past, what are we doing? We're responding to God, his works throughout our life in creation, in the cross, in our growth in the Christian life. We're responding to who God is, his character. We're responding to what God has done in his works. We're ascribing honor and worth to the Lord. And why are we doing this? Because he is worthy. As we look at the Bible, I don't want to take too much time doing this, but the story that we see throughout Scripture is one of worship. Think about Genesis 1 through 3. God creates man and woman. He creates Adam and Eve. And he puts them in the garden. And they had fellowship with God. And he calls them good. And while God doesn't say necessarily there that man is going to worship him, man and woman were created in what? The image of God. They were to represent God on earth. They were meant to be good. And they were to respond to God in one way. God gave them one rule that they were to follow, one command that they were to obey. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did they respond to God properly? They did not. Look at Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Both bring sacrifices to the Lord. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. Cain's sacrifice is not accepted by God. What do we learn about God? He wants our worship. He deserves our worship. But he wants us to worship in the ways that he has asked us to. Look at Exodus 20 with the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that we see. God requires certain things of his people. And even in the first four commandments, what do they say? You will, one, have no other gods before me. God is a jealous God. 
He alone is to be worshipped. Number two, you shall not make any carved images. I don't want to see any idols. Oh, I alone want to be worshipped. Number three, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Worshipping God means showing him the respect, the honor that he deserves. Not taking his name in vain, not using it lightly. Number four, you will keep my Sabbath day holy. We respect the Lord's day. We keep it holy as his people. God desires that we worship him as he instructs us to in scripture. Think about 2 Samuel 6. Do you remember the story of David and Uzziah? They're trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And David and Uzziah in their haste, they put the ark in a cart. And they have an ox take the cart with the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the ox starts to stumble. And the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall and hit the ground, which was not supposed to happen. And so Uzziah goes and he touches the Ark. And what happens to him? He dies. And why? Is that harsh of God? Is that mean of God to do? He was just trying to save the Ark. Is that how they were supposed to transport the presence of God? No, they were supposed to use priests. They were supposed to have priests carry the ark to Jerusalem. And David and Uzziah, in their haste and in their foolishness, wanted to take it themselves in this new cart that they got to transport the ark. What do we learn from worship in that story? God commands his people to respond to him as he has desired. And when they don't do that, he is disappointed. And in that story, Uzziah dies. In the New Testament, we see that God wants to be worshipped as well, but it takes on a little bit of a different form. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, our bodies are living sacrifices offered to the Lord. That worship is not just singing. It's not just even confined in our worship services, but worshiping God takes place in our very lives. Your life, what you do when everybody's watching, what you do when no one is watching you is worship to the Lord. And that should be a humbling and a sobering thought for us. In 1 Corinthians 6, we see that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Psalm 132 this morning, David wanted a temple to worship the Lord in. But we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to just even be in a church building, but we can worship the Lord by ourselves as the people of God because God deserves our worship and then in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 we see that one day God is going to be worshiped perfectly in this scene where everyone is gathered around God singing praises to him ascribing worth to him that God will be worshiped as he desires I want us to all to have this in the back of our mind as we look at our text this morning And we see two different principles about worshiping God. And the first one is this. God deserves properly motivated worship. God deserves properly motivated worship. If you look at me with me at verses 1 through 5. Like I said, this text is structured like a court case. And the Lord, who is the plaintiff, is the one who starts to speak. And look with me at verse 1. He says, hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains. 
Who is God talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's telling them again. That word here, it's used at, the, at all three of Micah's messages or oracles in the book. He's telling them to pay attention, to listen. He says, arise and plead your case. The word for plead your case is also going to be called an indictment later when the Lord is doing it. It comes from the Hebrew word rib. It means to argue, to make a defense or an argument depending on what side of the aisle you are on in a court situation. God calls Israel, plead your case before me. And notice who else he's talking to. He says, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Have you ever wondered why in Micah the Lord is talking to the mountains? We've seen this happen in all three messages. I was thinking about this, I was studying this this week, and one author proposed a thought that I kind of like and started thinking about more, and that is think about where some of the major covenants with God were made. Moses on Mount Sinai receives the Ten Commandments from God, and who is there as witnesses It's Moses and the Lord, and they're on this mountain. So even as we think about the mountains, the mountains are witnesses. They've seen this transaction take place with the covenants. And so now God is calling the mountains to listen because they're going to see whether or not Israel has kept their part of the covenants. The jury seems to be the mountains here. And notice verse 2 with me. Hear you mountains. He's talking to them now. The indictment from the Lord. There's that word again, the Hebrew word rib. It means to plead your case or to argue. He talks to the enduring foundations. He says, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. God is going to make his argument against them. And he says he will contend. This is a stronger word. It means he will assert or he will argue his side of the story. God is upset with the nation of Israel, and he is about to contend. He's about to argue to to these mountains, to these hills, why he is so upset. Notice the last part of God's opening statement in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Those words that God uses are both emotional words. That word weary means to become emotionally fatigued. Burden can mean physically or even emotionally and spiritually worn down. There's a lot of commentators who think that this is what Israel was complaining about. That God was wearing them down. That his commandments were burdensome. That they were becoming worn out. But as God is going to show, God has not done that to the nation of Israel. As scripture says, even in the New Testament, Christ calls everyone to come to him who are weary and heavy laden because he will give them rest. In 1 John, it says, my commandments are not burdensome, but truly knowing God and having a relationship with him does give us rest. And it's true in both the Old and New Testament. So what had God done to Israel? Did God deserve to have Israel respond in this way to him? Well, look at God's testimony with me. We see it in verses 4 through 5. 
In a court case, after the opening statement, there's a testimony where the lawyer for the plaintiff will call their witnesses to the stand. And they will each give an account on what they saw that happened throughout the case. And the first exhibit that God gives, exhibit A as I would call it, is the Lord saving Israel from Egypt. Look at verse 4 with me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. What has God done to his people? Well, first he says he saved them from Egypt. They were slaves for hundreds of years. And God, through these different people, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, he saved them and he brought them from the land of Egypt. As we see in many of the prophets, many of the Old Testament writers, God saving Israel from Egypt is a major event in their history. It's often cited by the Lord to remind his people of the good that he had done for them. We know throughout that story, God sent plagues onto the nation of Egypt. He delivered them out. He helped them part the Red Sea. He gave them manna for food. He protected them while they were in the wilderness. God made this group of slaves a people, and he protected them, and he loved them. And it was not more burdensome. Think about it like this. Was it harder for Israel to be slaves in Egypt or to be a free people in the nation of Israel? Obviously, it would be harder for them to be in Egypt. And this is what the Lord is saying. That God's nature is not burdensome, but it is gracious that God has protected them. He gave them good leadership. We see this with Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Moses was a type of prophet or even judge, leader in the nation. Aaron was a priest. Miriam was a prophetess. They all helped lead the nation of Israel. God was good to the nation of Israel and how he saved them from Egypt. Notice secondly with me, exhibit B, Balaam and the donkey. In verse 5, oh my people, he's pleading with them again. He's using that word, my people, my covenant people who he loves who he has a relationship with he says remember what Balak the king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him do you remember that story in numbers this is even while they're in the wilderness that this Balak wanted Balaam to prophesy against Israel that he wanted him to bring curses on Israel But God would not allow that to happen. He even tries to stop Balaam with his own donkey. And every time Balaam would try to curse Israel, it became blessings on the nation. We see that God is protecting Israel. He's loving Israel from the time that they were in Egypt to the time that they're in the wilderness. And then finally, look at the end of verse 5. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Shittim was the last encampment before the Jordan River in Joshua. They crossed over the Jordan River into Gilgal, and it represents how God gave Israel the promised land, how he protected them, how he helped them to conquer Jericho, which seemed like a city that could not be conquered, how he delivered them from their enemies, how he continued to guide them and to help them throughout the book of Joshua. 
God has been good to Israel. Notice the end of verse 5, it says that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. I'm going on vacation soon, and whenever you go on vacation, this isn't true for me, but you need somebody to mow your yard, right? You need somebody to watch after your pets, maybe. My family back in Illinois, they've got chickens, and the neighbors usually watch our chickens for us, or at least feed them, and um, we let them keep the eggs usually and have that kind of arrangement. Imagine with me if you were going on vacation and you asked your neighbor to mow your yard and it was a neighbor whose yard you've mowed time and time again. You've helped them with their pets while they've been gone on vacation. You've helped them start their car. You've maybe helped them reside their house or do different things in their garden. Maybe you've watched their kids while they've been gone on a date night or something. You've done all these things to help this neighbor. And then when you ask them to help you just mow your yard while you're gone on vacation, they say no. And you say, well, are you busy that week? Are you going to be gone? No, I'll be here. Well, do you not have a mower? Does your mower? No, it works fine. Do you not have time? No, I've got plenty of time. Just don't want to do it. How would you feel if that happened to you in that situation? Well, If I were you, I'd be looking to move houses at that point. This is how the Lord feels with Israel. Israel's complaining to God. They're saying the Lord is too burdensome. In in verses 6 through 8, they're going to say, we don't know how to worship the Lord. And God is saying, look at what I've done for the children of Israel. God is showing in his case for Israel reasons why they should worship him. Has God not given Israel plenty of reasons, plenty of events in their history for why they should worship him? When it comes to worshiping God, we worship him because of his character, who he is, and his works, the things he has done. Think with me this morning just for a moment. Do you worship God for his character? Think about the songs we sang this morning. Holy, holy, holy. We're singing about the holiness of God. Oh God, our help in ages past, the eternality of God. God has been a help throughout all of history. Do you worship God for his character? Are you thankful for his love that he shows you just in creating you every day? For his mercy that he's shown you through the cross? For the sovereignty of God? All of these characteristics of God That we see in who he is. Do we worship God for his character, his attributes? What does it look like to worship God for his character? We sing songs. We have worship services focused on different characteristics of God. In life, because of the love God shows us, because God is loving, we love others. Because God is wise, we use wisdom. Because God is merciful, we show mercy to others too. You might say, well, that's not worship. Worship is responding to God based on who he is and what he has done. And worship just isn't in a worship service, but it's in your whole life. Are you willing to say with that difficult neighbor, with those difficult family members, that I will still treat them right, that I will still show Christ to them because it is part 
of my worship. Do you worship God, secondly, for his works? What things has God done in your life? He's created you. He's saved you from your sins. He's given you the gospel. He protects you each and every day. One day we'll spend eternity with God in heaven, worshiping him forever. Do you praise God for his works? This is why we sing songs like, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, reminding us of salvation. This is why we sing songs of God's great works in our lives. We worship God for his character and his works. God deserves properly motivated worship. Notice with me, secondly, God deserves properly demonstrated worship as well. Look with me at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6. We see Israel's defense. Israel gets a chance to respond to the Lord. And whether or not this is what they actually say or this is just Micah speaking for the nation, Israel responds to God. And notice what they have to say in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Israel's defense to God after showing them his works, what he's done in their lives, they're saying, we don't know how to worship God. God is on high. There's a chasm between us. We don't know how to worship God like he asks. What could I bring to the Lord that would possibly measure up to what he requires from us? And we see Israel's exhibits, their testimony of trying to bring sacrifices to the Lord that would appease his wrath, trying to worship God. And notice with me some of these sacrifices that they bring. First of all, quality sacrifice at the end of verse 6. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? This is a whole animal. Offerings at that point, you could take an animal and you could keep some of it back for yourself to use for your family. So you weren't investing all of your money into that one animal that was being burnt up. Well, in a burnt offering, it's the whole animal that's being sacrificed to God. You were giving everything to him. It was very expensive. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? These were also the best in Leviticus. These are the most expensive, the best sacrifices that a person could offer to God. This was surely Saul's thinking. Remember in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul attacks the king of Agog and they kill all these people and they win this battle, but there's still some spoil back. There are still some things they save. And what does Saul want to do? He wants to save it and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And what does Samuel tell Saul? Obedience is better than sacrifice. The best that we have to offer God, the best quality, the most expensive, the wealthiest sacrifice is not what God requires. It's not what God wants. Israel starts 
bargaining with God. Well, if it's not the best quality, number two, it's the best quantity. If I can't give God the best, I'll give him the most. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Rams and oils weren't very expensive, but it's not the quality, it's the quantity. Thousands of rams that they sacrificed to the Lord. 10,000 rivers of oil, all of this stuff that they're trying to bring before God to sacrifice to him. Will this please the Lord? Is this what God requires from man? As I read this, I can't help but think of Solomon, who literally did offer thousands of sacrifices to God. But did Solomon live a righteous life for most of his life? No, he did not. Did Solomon, he had all the riches and wealth in the world, but did he know what it meant to fear the Lord? He did not. Lastly, notice with me a personal sacrifice. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The Bible nowhere commands or commends child sacrifice. It was something the pagan nations did. They would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. But as Israel's thinking, they're thinking, is this what God wants? Does he want my firstborn son? It's the most personal gift that you could give, your own flesh. He says, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And I think of Abraham, who was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. But then God at the last minute stops him and provides another sacrifice for Abraham to test his faith. God does not want a personal sacrifice. He doesn't want your firstborn child. As a firstborn child, I'm very grateful for this, as I'm sure you are as well. That God does not require this personal sacrifice. Friends, none of these things please the Lord. None of them are what God truly wants or requires from man. So what does God want from Israel? What does God require? Look with me at verse 8. He has told you, O man... He has told you what is good. Does Israel have to guess what God wants in worship? No. Did they have to bargain with God? Maybe he'll take this. Maybe he'll take this. No, God has shown his people, like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, he's told his people what he requires, what he desires from them. Think about with me what your favorite meal is. I had somebody ask me what my favorite meal was. I hate to do this to you before lunch, but it was a steak. And he cooked for me a ribeye steak on a wooden pallet on his grill. And it was, he asked me what I wanted it cooked at. And I said medium to medium well. And he cooked that steak so 
perfectly, where it was nice and crispy and finished on the outside, but juicy and tender on the inside. And he made for me a baked potato and salad and dinner rolls. And then for desserts, and I don't think I told him this, I think he found this out, he had a Reese's cake for dessert that was so good. Everything about that meal was perfect. But imagine if instead he asked me what I wanted, and instead of that, he gave me McDonald's, or he cooked my steak rare, or well done, or he got me a sweet potato instead of a baked potato, which I don't know about you, but that is not the same, okay? <laughs> he, yeah, maybe Homer, maybe for Homer, if this was his perfect meal. Instead of a salad, he made me eat Brussels sprouts. What does God require from Israel? He's told them. He's shown them in his word. And just like you, if you asked for a meal, and again, I'm not a picky eater. I'll eat what people put in front of me, as you can tell. But if someone asks me what I want for a meal, and I tell them and they still don't give it to me, then they obviously don't care about what I want. So what is God's requirement? Three things. To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to do justice? It's more than talking about justice, but it means doing the right thing yourself. Israel, at different times in Micah, is said to not know what justice actually is. They're said to have hated justice. And it's more than just wanting justice to be done, but it's doing justice in your own life, doing the right thing according to God's law. Do justice in your life. Secondly, to love mercy. This comes from the Hebrew word said, which means a faithful covenant love. God wants Israel to love God and to love others well. Israel did not love God. They didn't care about God or their relationship with him. They didn't love others well at all. And this same love is what we are to show to others. God faithfully loves and protects Israel. We saw that in verses 1 through 5. And Israel was to show this love to others. God wants justice for people to live rightly, to love mercy, to show Christ, to show God-like love to other people, and to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? This word humbly can actually mean wisely or carefully. It means to live in fellowship with God in a careful and thoughtful way. To be obedient to the Lord, to be careful in fellowship with him, to obey God wisely. And Israel had no care for this at all. This is how God wants to be served. Friends, this is how God wants to be worshipped. That God would have his children live righteously, love mercifully and walk humbly with him 
Think about how you worship God this morning. Is it according to these ways? Or is it according to your desires, what you want? And again, this isn't just about music or worship services. We can apply this to our services as well. Do we worship in ways that we want, that we feel most comfortable with, that we desire, that we're used to? And I'm not talking about styles of worship. I'm talking about worshiping the Lord. Do we worship according to the cultural norm of what is expected of us, of what culture says? Are we singing songs just because it's what everybody else is doing? According to what is easiest, how do we worship God? Do we worship God in ways that are just, in ways that are right according to his word? Music that reflects God's doctrine what he's taught us in scripture. Services focused on what God desires and a life lived according to God's word. Do we worship God in ways that love him and others well with services that encourage others that show our love and dedication and appreciation for God? A life focused on loving God and loving others well. And then do we worship God in ways that are wise? Music that's careful. Services that are thoughtful, planned out well. And walking in close fellowship with God. This is what God requires of us. As we worship him, not just in song, but through our lives in these different areas. God desires that we would be a people that worship him well. Do you bow your heads together in prayer with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship you, that we live in a free country to worship you. Father, I pray that as we continue with our service this morning and look towards communion, God, that our worship would be focused on you, that our worship would be done in such a way that pleases you, that reflects what you desire, Lord. God, help us not to make worship about ourselves, but God, in our hearts, help us to worship you in, in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that you would help us to live justly, that you would help us to love others faithfully, and that we would walk carefully according to what you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.